0: Good morning. We have uh, a few traditions here at Bethel Church, and this is uh, one of them where we light our Advent candles in anticipation to Christmas, uh, the day we celebrate the arrival uh, of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in very humble fashion. Uh, It always catches me every year uh, that the King of Kings would come as a baby. Um, I want to read to you this morning's candle that we'll light is the prophecy candle, and actually Pastor Keith Uh, Already read this passage to you, but I'm going to read it again. Um, But this is from Isaiah chapter nine, verses six and seven. For to us, a child is born to us. A son is given and the government will be on his shoulders and he will be called. Listen to these wonderful titles and let them sink in. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Um, I appreciate so much uh, that our God is a God who communicates to us, who has revealed himself to us and told us in advance more than 600 years before the arrival of Christ, That he would come. At first, this prophecy that was given um, wasn't—it wasn't encouragement, but it was given against the backdrop of disobedience. King Ahaz had not trusted in the Lord; he had trusted instead with alliances of other nations. And so God made this proclamation and this prophecy that one day would come a greater King, King Jesus. And so this morning we celebrate the prophecy candle. We light that. Wow, that's explosive, isn't it? (laughs) Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you um, that you have seen our need. Um, Long before even many of us were even born, you knew the curse of sin. You knew its consequence and its penalty. It separated us from you. And you put in plan a way to rescue sinners and to redeem us and to bring us back to yourself. And I marvel in your compassion and your grace and your mercy for we are all rebellious. And yet you have desired to redeem us. Thank you for communicating in advance what you would do for giving hope to those who would not get to see the advent of Christ. And for giving hope to those of us who look forward to his second Advent. And uh, we give our attention to that this morning. Thank you for communicating to us in your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And if you take out your Bibles uh, and turn to 1 Thessalonians 4. That's where we are this morning. We're continuing in our series uh, through the book called Steadfast, The Way to Wait for the Lord's Return. Uh, And I want to ask you, as you're turning, what are some of your theological questions? Uh, Those things that kind of rattle around in your brain that you wonder about, that you search the scriptures for, you kind of get an answer that seems satisfactory for a while and then then maybe over time you have to keep searching and studying and and looking and wondering and praying. I'll give you uh, some examples of some of the usual suspects. How can we be sure there is a God? People ask that question. How could we trust the scriptures? How do we know that they are reliable? If there is a God and he's all knowing and all powerful and all loving, then why is there evil in the world? Why is it still here? And if God chose to create us, I mean, why did God choose to create us knowing full well that we would sin? If that was a reality and he knew it in his omniscience, Why did he bother creating us a rebellious people? Or maybe you wonder, what will heaven be like? Uh, These are some of the common questions that people ask. And uh, there are good answers to these questions, as you know. But uh, sometimes it takes time and it takes a search to kind of finally get to clear answers on some of these kinds of things. Uh, Most of us, if we're honest with ourselves, and we're in church, by the way, so we should be honest with ourselves and with each other, we still have questions and we still are searching for answers to some of them. Uh, and the Thessalonians, we find, had some of these kinds of questions as well. Uh, some of them had not yet been answered. And, and we can understand that, especially since Paul and Silas were taken away from them sort of prematurely. Um, but they seem to have in specifically a question about what would happen to Christians, to Christian loved ones who died prior to Christ's return. That seemed to be the question on their mind as they were waiting for the Lord's return and remaining steadfast. They wondered, well, what about these family members and these loved ones who trusted in Christ and are not going to get to see the return of the Lord? Or, or they wondered that at least. And that seemed to be uh, their question. And more specifically, will they get to see the return of Christ? Will they get to participate in that event uh, at all or will they miss it all together? Uh, and it seems to me, and I could, be, I could be wrong about this, but it seems to me that the Thessalonians and, in fact, many other early Christians believed that the Lord would return in their lifetime, or at least they lived, they lived that way. It seemed like they were looking forward to his return. I, I kind of tend to think that most of them would have been shocked to learn that a couple millennium would go by uh, first. I, I'm just not sure about that. But it seems to me like they expected the return of Christ in, in their lifetime. And I think that's a reasonable expectation. After all, here we are just 20 years after uh, the death, the burial, and the resurrection and ascension of Christ. And so you can understand them thinking, hey, any, any time now, any day now, he's going to return. I think they probably would have expected that. Um, and additionally, we know that they didn't have the, the New Testament scriptures completed as we do. And so eschatology had yet to be completely developed and, and even though they were taught certain things, it was still in a sense in formation here. God was still revealing that to many of the, uh, the authors of the new Testament. So you can understand why they may have been expecting this. Uh, I also suggested last week that it was this, perhaps this expectation of the impending return of Christ that may have played into why the Thessalonians had struggled in their work ethic, uh, in other words, if Christ is coming back any day, then why am I going to work tomorrow? You know, it just doesn't sound like the thing to do. Uh, and I think it's very likely that they saw the persecution that they were enduring at that time uh, as part of the last days, maybe even sort of corroborating the belief that Christ could return at any time. I'm not sure about that. That's a bit of speculation on my part, but but that seems to play out fairly well. The passage that we're looking at this morning in chapter 4, starting at uh, verse 13, uh, Paul doesn't deal so much with the timing of the Lord's return or, or the chronology of events leading up to that. We have to go to other passages for that, uh, particularly Matthew 24, the Olivet Discourse. Uh, but rather, what he deals with primarily here is how will those who have believed in Christ and have died, how will they be reun- reunited with Christ when he returns? And that's the primary question that, that Paul is dealing with. with. Will they miss out on this event? And we find just really an an incredibly encouraging passage here. Basically, Paul's main point, the main thing he gets across is this. Be encouraged. Christians who have died will be reunited with Christ and with us who have trusted in him also. And so we have a great passage of encouragement and hope. And so this morning, the title of the message is Good Grief in True Charlie Brown fashion. Um, because that's the assurance that Paul gives to the church. You get to have good grief. Uh, In fact, the first point uh, that I'll draw out this morning is this. Don't grieve like the rest of the world when a Christian dies. Look at first Thessalonians 413. Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's own word. We tell you uh, that we who are still alive, uh, who are left to the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. Now, first of all, let me just be clear. Paul is not saying don't grieve. He's not saying that Uh, grief is The right thing to grieving is the right thing to do when when somebody dies. Uh, And in fact, Jesus modeled this for us, right? When his good friend Lazarus died, we're given those really short and yet profound words uh, that Jesus wept. Jesus wept. He he grieved. Uh, There was certainly a loss there. Uh, And Paul specifically instructs us in Romans 12 to rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. And so that that is the right thing to do. The point here is that as Christians, we're not to grieve in the same way as those who have no hope. When a loved one who believes in Christ passes away, uh, when a brother or sister dies, a brother, or sister in Christ dies, they're lost to us for a time. And that's what we're grieving. We're grieving the loss to us, but they're not lost to God. And that is the assurance uh, that we're given here. We're 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 told to have confidence in. That they are with Christ now, and that we will be reunited with them one day. Um, one of the people that, uh, that I'm really looking forward to being reunited with someday is my grandfather. Uh, my grandpa Johns, Gerald Johns. And uh, I just knew him for a few years in my lifetime. And I remember him as having just a wicked sense of humor. And I was trying to look for a picture, and I didn't have a digital picture that I could bring in this morning. Full head of hair. I don't, you know, I don't know what happened. It just skipped right over me. Um, but he was a really funny guy. He lived a hard life. Uh, he was in the Navy. He was a minesman. Uh, he was in World War II and the Korean War. Had great stories. He would talk about how he would fish for pike and for musky uh, on on Cedar Lake in Traverse City, Michigan and, and in the, the bay, Grand Rapids Bay or, or uh, the bay at Lake Michigan. And... Um, he would tell me his hunting stories, and I have one of his hunting rifles. I have his old thirty thirty, and uh, it's a real treasure of mine. And and uh, I think there's a part of me that feels like I really missed out on a lot of his life. And there's a lot of things, especially now that I'm in Alaska, I would love to share with him. I would love to talk to him about. It. We just hung the moose rack on the wall that we got from this year's hunt. I'd love to have my grandpa over to show him and talk about the story. And so there's this this whole part of of life that I feel like I didn't uh, get to share with him. And and I know for many of you that there's, there's a loved one uh, that quickly comes to mind that you've lost, whether it's a spouse or a son or a daughter, um, brother or sister in Christ, a family member. And you look forward to seeing them someday. And no matter when somebody dies, it always feels too soon, right? It's always too soon. And we long to look forward to them. And we have this assurance in this passage here that we will. Uh, but I want to tell you this with, with all due respect and with all the compassion that I can muster here. I want to remind you of this. As good as it will be to be reunited with them someday, it will pale in comparison to being reunited with Christ. It will pale in comparison. And when you think about that, as much as you long to see that, that loved one, It will barely measure on the scale in comparison to being overwhelmed with the goodness and the glory of Christ. And that's what we have to look forward to. Paul uses a word here, uh, fall asleep. Uh, It was a common euphemism for death, uh, which is a lot better than the euphemisms we use today, right? Kicked the bucket or bought the farm or checked out. We really have pretty horrible death euphemisms. But this was a comforting way to refer to death. And it one of the ways that it's comforting is that it speaks of physical death as only temporary. It speaks of it as temporary. And Jesus also spoke of death in this, this same way. In John 11:11, 11, 11, he said this. It says, after he said this, he went he went on to tell them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. But I am going there to wake him up. I like those words. I'm going there to wake him up. In, in Luke 8, uh, 52 through 54, uh, we run into another incident. It says, meanwhile, all the people were wailing and mourning for her. Remember this little girl that had died. And Jesus said, stop wailing. She's not dead, but asleep. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But he took her by the hand and said, my child, get up. And, and so what we run into uh, throughout the, the Gospels, when Jesus is on the scene, That death is only temporary. He speaks of it in terms of sleep. And and the apostles and the disciples continue to speak of it as sleep in a comforting way to remind us that it's only temporary. For those who have trusted in Christ, it's just a physical sleep, so to speak. We will be resurrected one day. And so Paul wants the Thessalonians to have this same hope and this this same confidence. Even though there's a profound sense of loss for their loved ones uh, that may have died. Um, If they've trusted in Christ, we grieve for ourselves and not for them. Because anyone who has trusted in Christ and died is better off by far because they're with Jesus. Well, Paul doesn't just make a sentimental claim here. He substantiates it with evidence and he presents, presents exhibit A. He says, hey, after all, we believe in the resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection is central to the faith of every Christian, and first Corinthians we're told that if there's no resurrection, if there's no resurrection of Christ, then our faith is futile and we are to be pitied above all men. Um, in fact, I'll if you want to turn to First Corinthians chapter fifteen, I want to read something. First Corinthians three, fifteen, three through eight. <coughs> Paul says this, for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures and that he appeared to Peter and then to the 12. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. There's that same language. Then he appeared to James, then to all of the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. And so once again, Paul is, he's not just presenting the evidence that, hey, Christ is raised from the dead, but even substantiates his evidence and says there were witnesses of this event. Therefore, we have hope because we believe that Jesus raised from the dead. He goes on because we believe that we believe in the resurrection of Christians. Uh, And Corinthians, again, the same uh, same, same passage, and this is, in fact, where Paul is writing from. He's in Corinth at this time, which is interesting to me. I wonder if the Thessalonians and the Corinthians are dealing with some of the same issues. Yeah, possible. But from, from Corinth, where he's writing, he talks about Christ as the first fruits in the same passage here. If you look at uh, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20, he says, But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Same language. For since death came through one man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own turn Christ, the first fruits, then when he comes those who belong to him. Uh, and so here the Apostle Paul uses this kind of an agricultural illustration to get his point across, and he refers to something called first fruits. And basically what this is referencing is that at harvest time, the farmers would bring a portion of their crop or the first fruits. They would bring this first sheave of of harvest to the temple and they would offer it there as a sacrifice. And this initial offering was really a token and a representative of the whole harvest. It was the first part of the expected whole harvest that they were dedicating to the Lord. And it was symbolic in that way. And so Paul's point is that Jesus was only the first fruits of God's future and coming harvest, which is all of those who trust in him. Um, thirdly, we can be assured here. That the dead in Christ will not be forgotten, and this is really the point of comfort, um, The dead in Christ will not be forgotten. Not only will they be raised, we also find that they will participate in the return of the Lord. They will, in fact, have a privileged position there. But this kind of brings up a very practical question, and I'm I'm sorry it sounds a little bit morbid, but uh, the question that we're talking about is a little bit morbid. And that is this. What happens when a believer in Jesus dies? In other words, where do they go between the moment of their death, and the time that Jesus returns. If, as Paul says here, they get to participate in the return of Christ and that there's a resurrection that happens there, then what's happening in the meantime? If I could be very blunt with it, it's the question that a child asks, where is grandma right now? Okay? I mean, that's really what it comes down to. Um, We're assured that if... Uh, if, if the bodies the bodies of dead believers are not raised until uh, Christ returns, uh, we, we have this question of where is that person now? We're assured that when they die that they are immediately in the presence of the Lord. And we have to, in order to understand this, this is called the intermediate state. In order to understand this, we have to have an understanding of what the nature of, of death is. Death, we understand, is the separation of the soul from the body. I like what C.S. Lewis says. He's very helpful here on this. He says, we don't have a soul. We are a soul. We have a body. Your primary nature, your primary existence is to be a soul. Uh, God has sort of housed your soul in this body. And physical death is just the separation of those two. But we're assured in the scriptures that our soul goes immediately to the presence of the Lord. There are several passages that corroborate this. In 2 Corinthians 5, 8, Paul says, to be absent from the body... Is to be present with the Lord. And that is the great assurance that we find. At Stephen's death, the first martyr and Jesus also, both of them had a very similar prayer. Do you remember this? They prayed, Lord, into your hands I commit my spirit. There was a sense of immediacy that they would ultimately, immediately be with the Lord. And finally, um, Jesus' Jesus's assurance to the thief on the cross. Remember this? Today... You will be with me in paradise. And so what we find is that those who have died, uh, who have believed and trusted in Christ, their soul is immediately in the presence of the Lord, even though their body awaits resurrection, which is what Paul goes on to talk about. And so what we find here is that when Christ returns, these disembodied saints will be reunited with glorified bodies uh, and that living saints will be reunited with them and with Christ together. It will be a great reunion In the sky, it seems. And I have to kind of stop here and just speculate for a little bit. I can't. My imagination gets going when I think about this. Um, When I think about glorified bodies, that sounds pretty good to me. Uh, I've got some complaints with my body. I'll just leave it at that. I'm not going to be overly specific. Um, And I tend to, I just wonder. and, and, And let me just give this huge caveat this is just sort of the wonderings of Eric okay this is a dangerous place to be but uh, I am absolutely confident that we will that our glorified bodies will be wonderful that they will be amazing and that they will give us a greater capacity to worship uh, and serve God someday I'm confident of that sometimes I wonder if if the reward system of Christ, is tied to glorified bodies that's my wondering. Because um, you know we're, we're told that we will be rewarded for deeds while well, well done in this life and I just I don't always think that it means we're going to have more gold or more bling in our castle someday do you know what I mean <laughs> So sometimes I wonder if it's tied to a glorified body. I wonder if I'll get the singing voice that I wanted you know not just where I can hit the high notes but where I can hit notes and scales. That my mind hasn't even conceived of yet. Like a whole other parallel universe of music. That I I don't even. Do you know what I'm saying? Just completely other. I wonder if my vision will be that much better. Not just improved to see physical things. But to actually see the glories of Christ. In dimensions that I can't right now appreciate. Um, I wonder if my mind will be able to uh, Grasp. So much more about who he is. And appreciate so much more about who Christ is. And what he's done for us. My emotions. I mean I have a spectrum of emotion. That's about here. You know some of you it's a lot wider. Mine's about here. And I think you know someday God will give me. A full spectrum of emotions. That I'll have on a. In the right way about the right things. And my heart will have a natural affection for the Lord. The way it ought to. I think of capabilities, so many things I'm not good at right now. Uh, And I think someday God will give me skills and abilities that will help me serve him better and serve others better. I I really look forward to a glorified body. Anybody else with me? Yeah, some of you are older than I am too, I can imagine. As I said, I'm confident our glorified bodies will give us a greater capacity to appreciate God and to worship him and to serve Christ. I don't know if it'll be tied to the reward system or not. That's where I'm sort of speculating. Um, But we have this great assurance and encouragement from Paul. That the dead in Christ, those who have trusted in him, will be raised one day. And though their soul is with him now, they will be given these new glorified bodies that will help them, I believe, have a greater appreciated, appreciation for Christ and for being in his presence. Um, so, we're not to grieve as those who have no hope. We believe in the resurrection of Christ, so we believe in the resurrection of Christians. And we can be assured that the dead in Christ will not be forgotten. They will, in fact, get to participate in that day, the return of Christ. Secondly, The return of the Lord will be obvious. I think that's sort of the bullet that Paul's getting across here in this second part. There may have been some that wondered, well, maybe we've missed it or maybe it will be hard to see. Maybe it will kind of go below the radar when Christ returns. You know, maybe they have some of the same questions that the disciples asked Jesus when he was on the Mount of Olives. Just just prior to his death during the Passion Week. They said, well, tell us about the signs of Of the end of the age. And and maybe they have some of the same kinds of questions here. What will the return of the Lord be like? And Paul gives them this assurance. The return of the Lord is going to be obvious. Listen to this. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven. With a loud command. With the voice of the archangel. And with the trumpet call of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. They were afraid that these, these beloved ones might miss it. And he's saying. Actually they're going to get there before you. They're going to get there before you. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. And now here's the exclamation point. Get this. This is the whole point of the passage. Verse 18. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. Encourage each other with these words. There are some that say the return of Christ will be secret. Uh, Sort of some eschatological positions. And I, I don't understand that at all. It looks to me to be fairly noisy and quite conspicuous. Uh, and and I'll, I'll actually show that a little bit more here. Christ's return will be announced as we're, as we're told, as it's as explained here. Not only will there be signs that precede the rapture, uh, which is spoken of in this particular passage here, being caught up together with them in the clouds. Uh, there will be signs that precede this that Christians are to be watchful for. But when he returns for his church, it will be undeniable. It'll be undeniable. And I think maybe the best passage to kind of read in conjunction with this might be Matthew 24, which is known as the Olivet Discourse that I've referred to. If you want to turn there, you can follow along. I'm going to go through it fairly loosely here. But again, Jesus' disciples had questions about the end of the times and, and when he would come again and what would be the signs that would sort of precipitate it. And so Jesus begins to speak to them uh, from the Mount of Olives. And I can just imagine sitting on this hillside, kind of overlooking Jerusalem and overlooking the temple and speaking about these things. at first in verse uh, in verse three, the question sort of comes up as they're walking past the temple and they point to it and say, look at these magnificent buildings. And Jesus kind of says something fairly dismissive about, yeah, actually, that's going to get torn down. So the temple will be destroyed, but that's not the sign. Then he kind of goes on and 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 he says some will come claiming to be the Christ. But essentially he says, but that's not it. And then he goes on, he's sort of dismissive about all of these events that will look like the end. He says, then there will be wars and rumors of wars. It's interesting to me. A lot of Christians will say, oh, there's another war. There's another skirmish over here. Boy, the Lord is coming back any time. But actually, Jesus is saying just the opposite. Wars and rumors of wars, he says, that's not it. That's going to happen, but that's not the sign. Then he says, there will be famines and earthquakes, but that's not it. In a sense, he says, these are just the beginning of birth pains. And as every mom who's delivered knows, that's a long process. Then he goes on to talk about, well, there'll be persecution and, and martyrdom, in fact. But that's not exactly it. Then there will be this event called the abomination of desolation. And Jesus seems to say at this point, uh, start watching. Now we're getting close. Now we're getting close. He goes on to talk about great distress that that happens, but still we're not quite there. Then he goes on to talk about people claiming to be Christ and even performing miracles. And he says dismissively again, but that's not quite it. In fact, listen to his own words here in Matthew 24, starting in verse 26. He says, so if anyone tells you there he is out in the desert, do not go out. Or here he is in the inner rooms, secretive kinds of places, right? Do not believe it. For as lightning that comes from the east is visible even in the west, so will, be, so will the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever there is a carcass, there will be vulture. There the vultures will gather. Immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and all nations from the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory, and he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from, the, from one end of the heavens to the others." In other words, to bolster my earlier point, the return of Christ for the church will be conspicuous and undeniable. You won't miss it. You won't be able to miss it. And Paul assures the Thessalonians that even the dead in Christ will not miss it. They will get to participate in that event. He assures them the dead in Christ will be raised. Followed by the rapture of living Christians. And at this point, there's a whole lot of uh, debate and discussion uh, around the question of when will the rapture occur, right? Uh, Oh, my goodness. Lots and lots of questions. Specifically, how does the rapture relate to the tribulation period? There's the pre-trib position that says, well, the rapture will happen. God will spare his people from the wrath of God and from a time of tribulation. And so it will happen before the tribulation occurs. There's some evidence to support that position. Then there's what's known as the mid-trib or the pre-wrath. Pre-wrath is kind of modified, the historic uh, mid-trib position, which says that actually it looks like Christians will go through much of the tribulation and even deal with some persecution and sort of man's inhumanity demand. And then that towards the end, they will be spared the wrath of God. I tend to hold this position myself. Uh, I think there's good evidence for this. And then there's post-trib basically saying that uh, they will go through the whole thing, and I don't think there's really any evidence for this because God assures us in this book in particular that we will be spared the wrath of God. And so I won't talk too much about that one. There's other questions. Will it be a single stage event? Will there be multiple stages? When Christ comes back for his church, how, how, how will this all happen? And um, the, all the questions here uh, begin to spill out, and, and a lot of ink has been spilled over this and the, and generally speaking, the discussions generate more heat than light. Have you noticed that? And we all kind of wonder. Why does Paul bring up this whole issue? Why does he bring up this snatching up and this rapture event? Why, does this, why is this all brought up? It's not so that we can go down and, and, and get our second advent calendars out and try to figure out down precisely to the day. In fact, as he goes on in chapter 5, he says specifically, we don't need to write to you about dates and times. That's not the point. What is the point? There's what we, what we call uh, in interpretation language an inclusio here, where a passage can be kind of front-loaded and then back-ended with the same point, which forms kind of a unit for the passage. And we see this here. We see an inclusio in this, this passage. Paul's first point talks about comfort. To those who have lost loved ones. And they're grieving. And then we find right here at the end. The same kind of comfort. Encouragement. That's why Paul is writing this. That's his explicit purpose. Don't grieve like others who have no hope. And he concludes encourage each other with these words. That's Paul's primary point here. He certainly contributes to the whole picture of eschatology with this passage there's some key things that are here but it seems that his primary aim in this passage is not cosmic eschatology but individual eschatology personal eschatology i like what gene green has said about this particular passage relating to all of the discussion about the timing of these things he says in haste to answer this question the real purpose of this passage is overlooked the passage was presented to comfort those in grief. This is not the stuff of speculative prophecy or bestsellers on the end times. The text is located at the funeral home, the memorial service and the graveside. It is placed in the hands of each believer to comfort others in their time of greatest sorrow. Isn't that good? I appreciate that. He certainly gives us some things that we need to know about the end times here and about the rapture and all of that. But Paul's primary point was to write to the Thessalonians and say, be encouraged. Christ is returning. When you lose a loved one, don't grieve like the world who has no hope. They will be resurrected. They're with the Lord now, but they will receive resurrected bodies, glorified bodies. You'll be reunited with them and with Christ. It'll be a wonderful event. You won't miss it. It'll be conspicuous. And the dead in Christ certainly won't miss it. In fact, they're going to be privileged to be there ahead of you. And so encourage each other with those words. Would you pray with me? Father, it's true. We certainly um, have a unique privilege. As you've given us pictures of what will come, as you you have given us assurance of, of your return, We have hope. And the hope that we have is not baseless, but it is based in the resurrection of Christ. We have seen you have already conquered sin and death. It is based upon the resurrection of Jesus and the evidence that supports it, that we have hope of our future resurrection. Lord, I find great assurance that one day I will get to see that great and glorious event, the return of Christ. If I'm alive, when it happens, it'll be an amazing event where I will be lifted up and brought to my Savior. If I have died, it will be the moment of reuniting with a resurrected body, a glorified body, So in any case, whether I'm dead or whether I'm living, it'll be a privilege. Thank you, Jesus, for your first advent, for your humble comings. Thank you, Jesus, in anticipation of your second coming. We long for it, and we pray that it would be soon. In your name we pray. Amen. Jesus gave us another sign of comfort. Uh, It was to remember his his death, his sacrifice on our behalf, assuring us that we will get to participate in these things. And he gave us the Lord's Supper to remind us of that. So for those who have been asked, would you come forward at this time? In 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23, we find the words of Paul recounting the scene where Christ celebrated the Passover with his disciples. Paul says this, For what I received from the Lord, what I also passed on to you, the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Father, we thank you for Jesus, our Savior, that you gave one so precious to redeem those of us so broken and rebellious. Thank you for his broken body. Thank you for his sacrifice on our behalf. We remember him. The same passage here, verse 25 says, In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink of it, whenever you drink it, in remembrance of me. And listen to these last words of comfort. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until what? Until he comes again. We remember his second advent through this remembrance of Christ. Jesus, thank you uh, for your willingness to come, uh, for your obedience to the Father, for the incredible challenge it must have have been to have left the prerogatives of deity behind in the abode of heaven, to come to this earth, a place filled with rebellion, to become man, and to take all of that sin and rebellion into yourself. To experience sin, to become sin for us, to have it killed in you so that we might be reunited and redeemed. Thank you for your obedience. May we not take it for granted. We look forward to your second coming. In your name we pray.